0: This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much. Um, it's good to see so many of you on a scorching, typically scorching,
1: <laughs>
0: Edinburgh August day. Um, this
1: makes me feel at home.
0: Yeah, but I mean... in because you live, what, half the year in New York or more About than half the year? Two thirds
1: of the year in New York. But this two-thirds July was so hot that nobody left the house.
0: Yeah, no, I, don't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Well, welcome. Um, and this is me in conversation with Reggie Adelson, as it says up there. Uh, and I would like to thank Bailey Gifford, our sponsors, whose name is also up there. Fantastic. Um, I'm doing this event because I was coerced. <laughs> uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a free choice. Um, it's I was how we
1: Americans like to behave with the Brits. Quite. You know, well, wasn't it, actually, it
0: wasn't actually you, Reggie. It wasn't you. Yeah, we'll start. It is going to get more political as, uh, as, as the <laughs> um, No, it was this letter here written in beautiful fountain pen by Lady Helena Kennedy, House of Lords headed notepaper from saying, Glasgow. Yeah, saying, we all know who Helena Kennedy is. And she said, um, she'd been pestering me, she said, you must read Reggie Nadelson's new book, London Grad. So she sent it to me, and that was the beginning of the process that led to us here today. Uh, so welcome, Thank Reggie, you. Uh, to start with, welcome.
1: I should level with you, Helena's my best friend, so it's not that um, objective.
0: an unofficial publicist as well, (laughs) shall we say. Um, We're mostly going to talk about London grad, we're going to talk a little bit about the character, um, uh, 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 Artie Cohen, we're going to talk about crime fiction in general, we're going to talk about politics, uh, uh, and everything else that comes to to mind, Um, but I was going to start by, I don't know if this is, I can't remember if it's from The Guardian or not, it's a quote well, it's, it's a bit of a quote. Artie was described, your main character uh, in the books, described as a cop every woman would like to wake up next to. <laughs> uh, I was just wondering, what's the attraction?
1: It's only me, really. When I started doing this, actually, the, the the main protagonist was going to be a woman, and then I got bored with her, and she met a cop, and I thought he was better looking. And People said, well, if these work, you'll have to do a lot of them, and you should be with someone you want to hang out with for quite a few years. And he really just emerged from that. And he's, you know, a bit between Ian and George Clooney, I would say, are the looks.
0: Let's hope towards the George Clooney side of that equation. I would. <laughs> um, he, he's an intriguing character, isn't he? I mean, tell us a little bit about his, about his history. Um, he's, got one of the, he's got one of the most complex personal histories or, or family histories of any character I've come across in recent fiction.
1: Well he started, as I said, I really started this because every journalist says I'm going to write a novel and you know at a certain point you think it's put up or shut up so I thought everybody says you have to write fifty pages and two chapters and give it to an agent and what did I know so I do all of these things. And I had spent a lot of time as a journalist in the former Soviet Union and I was intrigued by all of this kind of history happening while you're there. And when I started to do this character also because I wanted to set him in New York, and New York is a city of immigrants, so I thought, okay, he'll be uh, a former Soviet, kicked out because his mother was a refusenik, went to Israel, didn't like it there, only wanted to come to New York. That was his thing, I mean, to be a New Yorker. So he's thrown off all his past. He has no accent. He doesn't want to deal with Russians. He wants to be, and what could be more New York than a New York City detective? So he kind of invents himself, which is really what people do in America. I mean, it's an enormous difference. I was listening to some people yesterday saying, oh, you know, your inner compass always points to home. And I think, I don't even know where home is. I mean, my grandparents left Eastern Europe in some horrible village where they would have been killed and went to New York. I mean, my compass points to New York. My mother left Winnipeg in the winter. (laughs) Believe me, her compass never pointed to Winnipeg. And so I really wanted to do that. And also, I only know two cities. One is New Orleans and one is New York where people who live there feel it's the only place worth living. Mm. I mean, it's so much part of their being and who they are and their shtick and their attitudes. And so I wanted a character who kind of did this and out of that he grew and obviously he's parts of Russian friends and other friends and I also, I didn't know if I could pull off doing it as a man. Um, Even though my name is Reggie, that wasn't going to (laughs) really see me through and so that was the real test. Could I do a man?
0: You you know that, um, I mean, many, many years ago in the 60s when P.D. James started, she called herself P.D. James so that people might think she was a male writer. Oh, I didn't know Because she didn't think women writers were taken seriously. Um, I mean, it's a it's a, a grand tradition. Um, maybe J.K. Rowling did the same thing. I'm not sure why she decided to call herself J.K. Rowling. Um, but uh, he's also his father was KGB, right?
1: Yes. I mean, as the books went on, his you know it seemed to me fun to he kept getting more and more of a background. His father had been a young KGB star in the early '60s, when there was still real hope in the Soviet Union. Gagarin had gone up. They had the Cubans. The hit song in Moscow in 1962 was Cuba My Love. And so I wanted his father, I wanted him to have a lot of ambivalent feelings towards his father. He adored his father, but he was in the KGB. And because because his mother was Jewish and was a refusenik, eventually gets kicked out of the KGB and they move on. In fact, the next book I'm going to do, though you don't need to really know the background, is about Artie's father as a young KGB agent. Um, on a scholarship at New York University and stuck in 1962 New York uh, but uh, just the whole thing became more and for Americans especially this was the great other you know the other big country the enemy the evil empire but also for me because I grew up in Greenwich Village and I'm what is known as a red diaper baby I mean my mother was in the <laughs> Communist Party so there was all of this Crazy stuff going on when I first went to Russia, and I think Artie comes out of all of that, and that's very long-winded. I'm sorry. No, no,
0: that's that's the kind of answer I like as a chair. Get the man a drink. I can't. Yeah, I can't think of a better answer than that. Um, okay, but so you grew, up, you, you were born and grew up in Greenwich Village, yes. I think. Yeah. What and what was that like? I mean, it's a place that we some some uh, uh, British people really romanticize. We think it means coffee shops. And 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 jazz and early folk and Bob Dylan and all that kind of stuff. Was it, it did.
1: like that? Yeah, I mean it was a marvelous place to grow up, at least in the fifties and sixties when I was growing up. And there were still a lot of people like my parents who weren't I mean, my father had a small printing shop, and my mother was a housewife, they just liked that ambience. So you had this whole mix of people. Um, and when we were teenagers we were sneaking into the village Vanguard to see Miles Davis and Bob Dylan was around. But you know, We had this mixed thing. We were kids and it was where we were from, but we were also pretty sure that anybody who lived anywhere else was being slightly punished. I mean, we had the real arrogance of New Yorkers early, let me put it that way. But it was a wonderful place to grow up.
0: It's changed a lot. I mean, I don't suppose someone running a small shop and a housewife could afford to live there now.
1: Only people who were sort of stuck into their housing. There's still some people, but it's become a very she-she neighborhood. and, uh, but it's still lovely. Mm. I mean, downtown Manhattan is still mm. a great place, although most kids now have to go and live in Brooklyn, where my ancestors fled.
0: Yeah, that's become the trendy place to yeah. go now if you're young and artistic. It sounds to me a little bit from what you were saying earlier about Artie, that, that almost, you, were, you, you, you almost said this, that you were making it up as you went along, you were finding out more about him as you wrote more about him. Mm. So there wasn't, when you started the series, there wasn't a fixed idea, I'm going to write a series of books about this character, and I know this character intimately, and I know everything there is to know about them.
1: No, not so at
0: all. A, so the writing of the books was a process. Of, yeah. I'm interested in this, because that's exactly what happened with me and Rebus. Really? That the first book was meant to be the only book, and he was just a way, of, a means of telling the story, a means of getting a reader from A to Z. Um, by book two, book three, book four, book five, I was getting to know a little bit of his, about his background. But it was, you know, 14 books into the series before I found out that he had Polish antecedents.
1: Oh, God, I'm only...
0: <laughs> you know, so they
1: weren't Jews, were they?
0: I don't know. As I my mean, parents
1: would say, they would look at the, the crawl on TV and go, Sam, that's Shakespeare. Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> Jewish.
0: <laughs> no, I, think, I don't think Shakespeare was Jewish. Was oh, he? not a, according um, to my father. <laughs> um, no, it was just that the, the name Rebus Rebus I a, a, a discovered is a Polish name. I didn't know that because it also means picture puzzle, which is where well. I that's
1: what from. I thought it meant because I yeah. had a roommate in college who used to make rebuses for yeah. me and I have all these kind of Yeah, little coded messages. Yeah. yeah,
0: I love that. I love that. What about, um, I mean, coming up with a name, I mean, Artie, it's a jazz name, right?
1: Well, actually, it had a double meaning. The, the, the person who I got the most stuff from and who's become a very good friend in Moscow is a guy called Artimi Troitsky and he was my first Soviet. I met him in 1988 on a completely other and crazy um, film project, and he appeared in, a bl- in London in a black turtleneck. He was the coolest man. I thought, "Wait a minute. He's from the Soviet Union." And he said, "My name is Artimi. My friends call me art." <laughs> and I thought, this guy, so he became Artie. It was also slightly because I'm kind of a jazz nut, and I wanted him to be, so it was an Artie Shaw name, But his yeah. real name is Artemi Ostalsky and he, cha- he wanted an to Amer- His mother was Cohen, so he became Artie Cohen. I mean, it's not even a name I like, but you're right, it is a good jazz name.
0: It's a very good jazz name, and it t- something about the name tells you a lot about the character, I mean, as you've just said. You know, the, the sort of interest in jazz music, uh, the Jewishness, comes across very soon, you find out about the Russian roots. Um, and it seems to me that you just cannot escape Russia. So many of the books in the series, um, either, I mean, in, in, in London Grad, which we're going to talk about a bit more length now, um, he eventually goes to, to, to Moscow. Um, in pre- in the very first book, he's dealing with um, uh, n- a nuclear material that's, right. that's being smuggled in. Uh, there's a, a phrase you use for it, I can't remember what it is, a, a nuke.
1: Suitcase nukes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah,
1: the little nukes that are now supposedly smuggled. You're right. I mean, the first one, I thought the tension would be this guy has become a New Yorker. I mean, after 15 or 20 years, his age is a little slippy. Unlike Rebus, you've been very oh, honest. I can tell you
0: exactly how old he is. He's... Uh,
1: He's pushing fifty. He's
0: forty-eight. Oh, no, know, he's forty-nine. Yeah, in, but uh, if London, you really
1: right. go back to the early books, yeah, I think he's, he's, he's yeah, about a hundred and three.
0: Well, again, that's very like P. D. James because you know that her character was middle-aged in book one in the sixties, and is still middle-aged. Well, what about uh, Spencer? Spencer yeah. was must have Ageless. been a hundred yeah. at least. And and Wexford, Ruth Rendell's Wexford, must be eighty-five.
1: Exactly, but.
0: Uh, but readers allow us this. They do. It's
1: amazing. You can get all these things wrong, and I don't know, people had children before they had the children and all (laughs) kinds of stuff. And of course, only your best friends. My best friend, the only thing she had to say about my last book was, Ninth Avenue doesn't go uptown. (laughs) I said, that's all you took away from my baby? So...
0: Yeah, well, I, I got picked up the, uh, once and forevermore because in the Oxford bar, which is where my detective drinks in most of the books, I had a little foot rail, a little rest for your foot along the front of the bar and there isn't one. Um, I mean, I was writing the book in France, you know, I mean, uh, but, uh, But when I came back, the first thing was, I just noticed that that bar doesn't exist. uh, A footrest doesn't exist. I just wanted
1: to ask you something about that, Ian. Don't you think sometimes people do too much research? (laughs) No, seriously. I mean, I hate research, but sometimes I feel people have to unload these big chunks of research because they've done them, and you don't really care at the end of the day.
0: In, In some ways, I mean, I agree with you, and I think in some ways that's why cops tend not to make very good crime writers. Cause I know lots of cops and ex-cops who've tried to write crime fiction, and they don't know what to leave out. Yeah. They want to put in all the doorstepping, all the questioning of people who aren't relevant or germane to the story. And what you do is you give—I mean, as a as a writer, what you try and do is give a little taste that that stuff is happening. But we're not going to write about that because that's boring. So if someone comes into the police station and says, "I'm really tired. I've been doorstepping all day." That's all you need. Yeah. Um, but a lot of um, writers, when they start out, don't know that. And if you've done the work, you want to show people you've done the work. Well,
1: naturally. You know?
0: Um, and I was, an I was A won't get
1: you into university here anymore. You need the A star.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't get into university now. I, I was, certainly uh, wouldn't. You know? I
1: wouldn't have gotten through high school.
0: I was just talking about that today with somebody. I wouldn't get into Edinburgh University now to study English with my A and two B's in the Scottish higher system. Um, where are we going? I forget what we're talking about. Um, um. <laughs> Research. Pops. Well no, but research. R- research. research is good because I was going to ask you about that because this book is set in starts in New York, moves to London, and I'm very interested in your take on London um, uh, and then moves from there to Moscow. Um, so how much of the travel did you offset against tax? As much as I possibly
1: could. <laughs> um, I I know Moscow really well because I've made so many trips there and um and and I've since I was a student I've been coming and going to London so the research was I didn't do that much research I mean I read a lot of stuff I thought about it because it's about bad oligarchs and what they're doing um there was one person I probably could have met and then I thought what if he knows it's him mm-hmm. I don't want to go down that road but I, my most I- interesting experience along those lines. When I did the first or second book, I thought, listen, I'm a lefty from Greenwich Village. I've never seen a gun. And I thought, oh, Christ, I better meet a cop. So I hunted down this very nice cop. Turned out he went to Princeton. And um, <laughs> he had copies of Graham Greene in the back seat of his car. And two things. First of all, he said, all right, we'll go to Chinatown. Make like you're a police person. I'm like, what is he talking about? He said, Well we're gonna go into an illegal gambling place. We'll knock on the door and we'll you get you'll get a look. I said, Meanwhile, I said, Do you have a gun, Bill? He said, I'm a cop. I said, Can I see your gun? He said, Yeah, sure. He said he said, "Don't hold it like dirty Kleenex." That's... <laughs> so, but the other thing, the thing that was most helpful was I said, "Will anybody believe me?" He said, "Listen, there are 50,000 people in law enforcement in New York City. There's everything. There's a guy who has a PhD in classics. There are, you know, women doctors who are homicide captains." He said, "As long as it's coherent, you can make your character, your cops, anything. Maybe I don't know whether in a smaller place you have to have." A sort of tighter fix. Um,
0: I I don't know. I mean, I, 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 there are differences. I, I mean, the Scottish legal system and the English legal system are different. So you've got to be very aware of that. Um, you know, I mean, I used to think there were twelve people on a jury in Scotland because I'd watched Twelve Angry Men <laughs> uh, or Crown Court on TV. But they were, that was set in England. But in Scotland there were fifteen. Really, I so, didn't I mean, know. So this is that. the kind of stuff. That, and and you know, you need to know that kind of stuff. Um, or you don't, because I I never my books never enter the courtroom. Uh, you might, Some people might have noticed that, because I, I, I don't know anything about the way the legal no, process works. No, mine either. Funny thing. They, no, I'll you know, leave it to Scott Terrell. I can't be, can't be bothered. Yeah, you know. yeah. Leave it to the Grishams and the exactly. to do that kind of stuff. Exactly.
1: But you asked about the, knowing the different cities. I mean, I picked the cities, obviously, I know, and also that had to do with my hero, who's always being dragged back to Moscow and back into things Russian. The London thing really interested me because of the Litvinenko case, when, you know, remember they poisoned that guy. Uh, with polonium and I said th- because already sidekick is a big rich sort of wannabe oligarch I thought it might be a good way to get him involved in and, and I mean the 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 business of the Russians in London is uh, it's quieted down a little bit now but the influence was enormous on the whole money scene I mean it was so integral to the whole crazy banking mm. stuff you know they were coming in and they didn't have to pay any tax Talk about no tax,
0: yeah,
1: um, and buying up property and, and destroying. Football teams, yeah,
0: as you mentioned in the yeah. book, <laughs> buying up football teams, buying up newspapers. Yeah, I mean it is a, a bit of a, It seems like a nest of vipers, but uh, but everywhere you write about, it seems like a nest of vipers. I get the sense that I mean you've said yourself a sort of lefty, growing up in Greenwich Village. There is a. I mean I don't know. We're going to talk about this now you know, why did you choose the crime novel? Was it that you were a fan of crime fiction or did you feel this is a good way of dealing with these big social issues that I'm angry about?
1: I wish I could say yes altogether, because it sounds great. Um, I partly did, because I love crime. I mean, I've always liked reading crime stuff. I also did it, I think, if I'm being really honest, because certainly in the beginning, I didn't feel I was good enough to write the kind of, literary fiction that I really admire and of course a lo- I mean thanks to you some of that has changed now people do- don't have to divide up between well
0: genre you named name Graham Greene who's a good example of Yeah well of Graham Greene was,
1: was, was always it. my hero I mean and of course he made the distinction between entertainments like Brighton Rock and yeah. and serious novels but you know Brighton Rock is hardly unentered it's a brilliant great novel and I think he was The writers I admire are also craftsmen. I mean, Green wrote short stories, he wrote entertainments, he wrote travel books, he wrote movie reviews, you know, and I I think now a lot of sort of literary figures are so rarefied and so full of themselves, and you think, oh, please, let me just turn the page already, you know. (laughs) Dickens wasn't writing for his pals, he was writing to earn a living. And so it's probably that the social issue thing, I think, has. Is kind of in my bloodstream. I mean, I'm, you know, and it's, and one of the things I've tried to do with these is because things have become a lot more complicated than when we were younger. You know, we were at, we were going to power to the people and fight the revolution, and of course discovered that we hadn't been that smart either. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things about Artie, because he has this complicated background, and listen, I grew up with people whose parents would stand up when the Internationale was played, you know. And we realized how crazy that was. And so I wanted a way to talk about some of the complications of it. And also, I had to have Artie as a cop, for instance, believe in the death penalty. So he says, you know, I'd fry those bastards if I had my way. And I'm thinking, oh my god, I can't live with this man. But um, I I think it does. You know, They don't have to be overtly political, like your books. I mean, but you're very aware of a whole lot of class things uh, a whole lot of other things going on.
0: Yeah. I just want to check, because uh, you keep sort of covering up your mic with your oh. jumper. Can people hear, oh God, Reggie, okay? I That's okay. Because I, I, I can hear. I can't hear whether the microphone is Sorry is, is about going that. That's okay. I just want to make sure everybody's hearing you okay. Um, no, I mean, I, I take what you're saying. Um, I mean, I just feel that if you're writing crime fiction, what you're basically saying is why does crime happen? What kind of society does this happen in? And what kind of crimes do we get? Um, so that if you're writing crime fiction you should be interested in those, those sort of topics um, which, you know, so you've probably got a social conscience um, again you, you then come up against the fact that as you've said with the death penalty your cop may not be as lefty as you are your, your cop will probably be someone who's, who's you know, got very uh, um, well not extreme right wing views but they'll be, uh, they'll be interested in the status quo yeah. preserving the status quo of the time I mean Rebus is like that I've continually got a, a, a fight between me and him as to the way the world really is, because he sees it very much in terms of black and white, good guys and bad guys. And I keep trying to persuade him that there are differences, there are nuances.
1: Um, I know, and it's not an easy fight. Uh, I've,
0: I don't know if I've ever managed to change his mind even for one second. Um, to go back to London grad, there's also quite, I mean, some quite sharp words in here about Manhattan as well, about New York and the way that it has changed. Um, I mean, I know you don't want to do a reading from the book. But maybe I can do a reading from you if I can find the quote here Uh, 5960 let's have a look because I I just wondered is this him talking to us or you talking to us Uh, it's about Manhattan felt like a cruise ship an overcrowded pleasure boat getting ready to sink but full of people having a ball as it sailed through the lit up streets any minute though it would hit bedrock and start to go down too loaded up with ambition real estate money talent sex drugs booze work always money it was ready it was ripe. something had to explode
1: it's it's him and me and also because this book was rewritten its last draft as you could see the 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 economy was going to just tank that I uh, to be honest I put a bit of that in towards the end and there was a time before 07 or whenever things really went south that New York was just exploding I mean London too, where money became everything I mean the hedge funds and the bankers and the bonuses and the you know real estate prices and everybody else was pushed out of the city and the level of greed and I mean I live in in a Place called Soho downtown, which is when I moved there. It was old warehouses and crack dealers. We like to reminisce about that.
0: But, <laughs> the, um, the good old days. <laughs> my
1: father used to say, "You're going to move to a place with crack dealers and pipes hanging from the ceiling," and. Um, uh, you know, it's been taken over by kids, 25-year-olds who are buying five million-dollar apartments, and of course, it all exploded with the Madoff business and the end of the banks. And you had the same thing. But I did feel New York was because it's such a fragile city, and I think a lot of that still comes from 9/11. I mean, the sort of fragile. The brilliant thing about Manhattan—it's like Venice, really. It's all man-made. It's fantastically rich, built on money and commerce, floating there in a sea of water, and so vulnerable. And I remember, you know, for me, there's nothing like coming into Manhattan when you come home. And I think a lot of people feel that. It's one of the cities that just gives you a great jolt. And of course, for years, what you saw, the first thing you saw wasn't the skyline, but the missing buildings and that real and also it's I mean I they were in my window my south-facing window And when I came home they were gone and I think a lot of people really felt that kind of um, fragile thing and I again felt it with with the money I mean in New York is you wouldn't notice it but you know my neighborhood half the shops are closed it's like a ghost town in a funny sort of way and I think that was that was really what that you, was um, about.
0: You, you sort of wrote well you, you wrote about well, you wrote a book that was after 9-11. Uh, Disturbed Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Which sort of took that on board, uh, some of that. I mean, it is really as though, and, and in this one you've already mentioned Litvinenko. I mean, he's, you know you do, I mean, I don't know, are you are you, are you sort of grabbing the headlines from the newspapers and thinking, I can do something with that? Or is it tangential that you start writing the book and suddenly something happens and you think, I can blend that into the mix? I, th-
1: I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I'm much more interested in the story. It's very rare that the, this one... Um, was based a little bit more on headlines, London grad, but um, yeah. no, I suppose it's because really I'm a journalist by by trade, and so I'm always aware of of what's going on. And it, as the books go on, it's really become a chronicle of New York. I hope in a in a funny sort of way since yeah. the mid '90s. Um, it's a city where you can't it's really hard not to take account of what's going on. I mean, everybody's buzzing with everything. And also because it's a very small city physically, it's grown out to its edges, so Manhattan is not, I mean, a lot of my books are really about the kind of funky old industrial edges of New York. Nobody lived on the waterfront until very recently because that was was the tough end of town. And so it's really about, as much as it is about the headlines, it's about the changes in the city.
0: But it it seems to me that you take something that to you is uh, is sort of, you know, zeroed in on Manhattan, it's happening, or it's something that's interesting to you, but it's actually an international phenomenon like the sex trade and sex dolls. Um, It's the sort of thing where you you get the idea for the story and then you find out, maybe while you're writing it or maybe after it's published, somebody says, oh, actually, we've got that problem as well in Mm. Australia or in, uh, you know, in the Far East or Canada, wherever it happens to be
1: yeah I mean I I think it's both
0: is is a journalistic instinct I I think it it
1: is a journalistic instinct and in some cases it's simply been that I've started with Artie not knowing what I was going to do but he lives in a building on top of a Chinese restaurant and the daughter of the restaurant is being done in by opium and sort of super opium poppy so I thought all right well we'll go to Hong Kong but I've stopped doing that because taking Artie out of his element isn't nearly as satisfying I mean to be honest the few books that went to places like hong kong were because i'd been to hong kong it's as simple as that and i thought "Ooh, what am i going to do with all those little notebooks
0: <laughs> nothing's wasted to the writer um it's something muriel spark once said nothing is ever wasted to the writer um i've drifted off i was free i had a question and you just you just put it straight out of my mind uh, it was to do with rebus, uh, rebus is god there you go uh it's <laughs> to do with Artie cohen's relationship with women he's a dangerous guy to be around
1: Yeah, he's not. I mean, and and quite, especially younger people find this really weird that he has a lot of women and he likes to sleep with women. But I I hope that he's not unlike, shall we mention who we were talking about? We both feel, if I may say, what's the name of the guy, Michael? uh, Yeah, Michael Lundqvist. Steve Larsen's hero seems to feel there's no woman who wouldn't hop into his bed immediately. Artie has a much, I mean, there's a woman, Lily, who is his true love and she's impossible and he's impossible and she drifts off and then he finds someone else and then he marries a nice good girl thinking he can settle down and make a go of it and that doesn't work and he's a mess
0: (laughs) he's also not always a cop which is interesting you know he sort of goes off and does um consulting work he does uh, yes the private eye he did a
1: couple of times i always try to make him even when he's a cop i try to make (laughs) the cases happen during his vacations so I don't really have to get stuck into the procedural. I mean, that's just a really, you know, sort of crummy um, thing to do. I but think
0: it, it's, a, it's a truism of crime fiction in, in England, as it was with Agatha Christie and, and uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, and in the States with the, the Chandlers and, and the Hammets, what you had was you had private eyes in the States, and over here we had amateurs, gifted amateurs, because in neither case did we need to know how the cops operate.
1: Exactly.
0: So that nobody could pick you up on a point of procedure because there was no procedure. Your your characters weren't f- having to follow the procedure. I thought that was really interesting. This book, Undergrad, uh, starts off with, with a, an absolutely astonishing sort of visual uh, uh, scene of a, a, a murder. Um, and I just wondered where you got the idea for that. The, 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 tell the, us what it is, the taped up woman on the swing. Do
1: you know, I have no idea. I know that the duct tape after 9-11, the Bush government was telling us all we needed to do to protect ourselves in New York was by duct tape and tape up our windows when the radiation came, and there were so many jokes. People, kids, young artists on the Lower East Side were making ball out of duct tape. I mean, it's not a reverent city, and so there's always been this stuff about duct tape that sort of stayed in my mind. I really don't know.
0: It's the equivalent of duck and cover in the in the 50s exactly. when it told you you could, you could escape an atomic bomb by unscrewing a door and hiding beneath it. Um, <laughs> It is. I mean, it's, you've not really described it. I'm going to describe it a little bit. It's, it's basically RT is just driving along a street, going to deliver yeah, well, some books to, to somebody. And you read a couple of those and, uh, uh, Huh? Do you want me to read a couple you, of those Would you days? read a couple? That'd yeah. be great. We've got time. I mean, just read the opening. Have you got a copy?
1: No, it's okay. whether I have glasses that's the well. issue. You know.
0: I mean, well, you'll be able to find it quicker than I will. But it's just where of, he
1: first sees the girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I remember kind of that. There. Okay. Um, He's gone to Brooklyn for his friend Tolia to deliver some books, so there's, that's all you need to know. If I had gone straight to Brooklyn from Tolia's, if I had not stopped at home to grab some swim shorts and call Valentina, maybe I could have avoided the whole damn thing. Maybe I would have avoided the little kid yelling and waving, mouth open in an O with a howl coming out. By the time I saw her as she darted into the street, I was a second away from running her down, from killing her. Sweat covered my face, ran down the back of my neck. The bag on the seat next to me fell on the floor, books tumbled out, the books I was taking to the old lady for Tolia. I slammed on the brakes, I got out of my car in the middle of the street. There wasn't much traffic out here in this dismal corner of the city, but a few cars were honking now, and I yelled at them and grabbed her up, the kid who was yelling, and sat her down on the curb. It was a warm, dry day, gusts of wind coming off the water half a mile away. Balls of newspaper and dust rolled along the nearly empty streets. It was a holiday, July 4th. Do you want me to read about the girl in the duct tape? On the broken sidewalk out here at the edge of Brooklyn where it butts up against Queens, I put my arm around the kid in the dirty pink t-shirt and tried to get her to talk to me. After a while she calmed down some and started talking in a tiny voice and I realized she was a Russian kid. I asked her name, Dina, she mumbled and pulled at me and I followed her across the street which was lined with ramshackle houses, some of the windows broken and covered with plywood and plastic. In one of the yards weeds had grown up over the skeleton of an old Mercedes. There was garbage everywhere. A desolate place 15 miles from the middle of Manhattan. Dina ducked under some rough bushes. In front of us was a gate to an old playground surrounded by chain link fencing. A padlock was on the gate. A piece of the fence was missing and Dina got on her belly and crawled under it. I followed her into a wasteland of overgrown weeds and grass, used needles, empty bottles. It was silent, a thick dead silence except for something creaking. A low raw sound I couldn't identify. The jungle gym was broken, the sandbox was empty, no sand to play in. Dina was silent now. Then she lifted one skinny arm and pointed, and I followed her gaze and saw it, a figure on a swing. It was the source of the noise, the raw creak, the metal chains grinding against the poles where the swing hung. Wrapped in silver duct tape that glinted dully in the morning light, the figure, probably a woman, was sitting on the swing, arms tied to the chains with rope, a harsh wind moving her back and forth. Or maybe it was her own weight that propelled her as she went to and fro, back and forth, on the swing in the deserted playground in Brooklyn. When did you find this, I said in Russian as softly as I could, though there was nobody else here. Is she dead? She is dead, said Dina, and then suddenly broke away from me and ran out of the playground. Head down, too fast for me to catch her—a blur of skinny legs and arms and pink shirt. I called it in and went back to the swings. Mm,
0: thank you. Um, <laughs> thanks. I mean, what immediately springs to my mind as you're reading that is how incredibly visual that is. It's almost like a—you can you can just see the film of it, which makes me ask oh, the question. Oh, can you call a producer? With, with, yeah. Well, makes me ask the question. I mean, has there been any interest? Uh,
1: well a bit on and off not re- not a, you know people call you up and then uncall you up and then they tell you it's not dexter and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was the email today um so you know people have been trying on and off i think the next one i mean one of the th- problems for film people is first of all film isn't nearly as good as television in my view i'd much rather have it on television but they're expensive i mean My new one is only set in a weekend in Harlem in one building, so I'm hoping it may be a little cheaper for the film people.
0: (laughs) And this, I mean, this comes out in the UK in February next year. Um, Reggie's just given me a copy today, I've not read it yet. But it it takes place really in the aftermath of uh, Barack Obama's inauguration or the
1: yeah it starts on the night of the inauguration which was the greatest night of my life in New York City people were partying all night (laughs) I had things to drink I can't even tell you Um, and it ends on the and it really it ends on inauguration day but in between it just takes place in the weekend when the sort of economy tanked and Artie finds himself stuck in Harlem and nobody's white and um, people start to die
0: but, but not him, I suspect. Um, slightly on a tangent, but another thing that you did was called Comrade Rockstar. <laughs> yeah? Yes. Um, I mean, I, I, in fact, I remember reading about it, and I've been absolutely fascinated by the story where, when you first brought that, that out, but can you tell us a little bit about Comrade Rockstar? Well, for this is, yeah, this is
1: really where all my Russians come from. I, um, somebody told me if I wanted to write a movie, I should read the obituaries. So I had seen in America, this must have been in 86, um, we have a show called 60 Minutes, which is the sort of big current affairs show. And this guy appears and he's this gorgeous sort of um, movie star-ish looking guy, all American, And he's defending the Berlin Wall. Now, I only know lefties who come from Greenwich Village. I mean, this guy's from Denver. Uh Anyway, I followed it through. Six weeks later, I saw his obituary. And I then began to follow the story. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the whole story. It is the wackiest story you've ever heard. He's a kid from Denver in the 50s. He goes to seek fame and fortune in Hollywood. He looked great. He was like, for those of you who are old enough, he was like a sort of tab hunter or a Rock Hudson and he actually gets a singing career and then he hears he has a hit in Chile so he gets in a Chevy Impala convertible I mean it's very improbable goes to Chile has a career discovers politics becomes a lefty is discovered by the head of the Komsomol and spirited into Moscow in the middle 60s they were having problems because everybody had fallen in love with the Beatles Suddenly, this gorgeous American who spouts socialism arrives singing Blue Suede Shoes in Minsk.
0: And they're like, my
1: God, how did we get so lucky? I mean, he really was the man who brought rock and roll to Russia, and he had a If you meet a taxi driver or a Russian over 40, ask them if they've ever heard of Dean Reed. Ah, Dean Reed. Yeah. He was enormous. He then settled in East Berlin. He made westerns with propaganda themes. I mean, it, it's a kitsch story. He made spaghetti westerns with Yule Brunner. I mean, he w- he was very busy, and he died mysteriously in a lake behind his house in East Berlin in 1986. So not only was it a great story, it was a great thriller, um, and I. It was commissioned by Granada Television and HBO, and we did this screenplay, which I wrote, which was so terribly embarrassing that I cannot tell you. But just let me tell you, when you write your first screenplay, don't put it in a red cover with a gold star on it, because you'll feel very humiliated later on. Um, And then that didn't happen, but I wrote a book, and then we made a documentary, and then nothing happens. And about five years later, I'm literally in a missile silo in Wyoming doing something on missiles. And my agent calls me and says, Tom Hanks has bought your book. You know, one of those great, please, you know. And it was true. He had bought it and watched this space. Who knows? Okay, so it might still happen. It might still happen and I got a new kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) No, somebody told me the point of thinking about your books as movies because you'll break your heart otherwise is fix your kitchen and pay your mortgage
0: someone else did that i think it was lindsay davis years ago uh one of her books was turned into a tv film i think in america i can't remember um uh one of her falco books and she bought a new kitchen yeah this obviously is a done thing no, you're uh, all invited
1: i have a fabulous kitchen in new york
0: <laughs> okay well we're all invited for drinks right
1: absolutely this is
0: where i've gone wrong i've never done my kitchen up. Um, <laughs> I never use my kitchen. Um, all right, we're going to throw it open to questions in a couple of minutes. Um, but before we do, uh, I, I'm going to come back to Helena Kennedy. Um, how, did you, how did you first meet her? Was it through your journalism?
1: No, it was when I wrote my first Artie book. I, maybe I'd met her once at a party. But anyway, I guess she gets sent every crime book. And I picked up my messages from New York. there she was, and I thought, my God, I mean, next to having Ian Rankin interview you (laughs) is having Helena on the end of the phone. And I said, oh, could we meet? I'm in London. We went and had lunch. And we discovered this extraordinary thing, that when she was a young barrister, she was at the Old Bailey, and she got a note, and it said, watch juror number three. And the person who had sent it was a very famous (coughs) left-wing labor lawyer called Leonard Boudin in New York I went to school with all of the Boudin kids in Greenwich village i then start getting phone calls from the mothers of high school friends going ranchie helena's in town are you going to come to dinner and we'd been living cuz she had been sort of adopted by this family and so we'd lived parallel lives in our 20s and that's and they've become really my family and poor helena with every book she has to like you know, schlep to the phone, call people, write to Ian, um, and the, the best thing, I was telling Ian before, we, we did a thing at Hay one year, and so we thought, oh, we'll talk about crime and Wilkie Collins and Edgar Allan Poe, and she was talking about her cases, and at the very end, somebody put up their hand, and we said yes, and he said, Reggie, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, and she said, where did you get those shoes? <laughs> So these are my book festival shoes. (laughs) But but Helene is an absolute, I mean, just to be a little serious for a minute, she is the most extraordinary woman. I mean, you know, with all the good stuff she does in her cases and everything, she always has time to go shopping. She has a fabulous husband. She has adorable kids who stay with me all the time. I mean, she's really, Scotland should give her Scotland or something. (laughs) She already has like 39 thousand yeah. advanced degrees but she's really and so and sadly um, she
0: can't be Baroness Scotland because there already is one yeah but, um, but and
1: she sent it to, to Ian and he yeah. wrote to me and said I see you have a new publicist yeah
0: that's true but she's a good publicist where did you buy the shoes
1: in <laughs> in Sao Paulo how's that
0: okay that's that that's that mystery there's one mystery remaining though and I don't know if you can solve it or not why did he send her a note saying watch out for juror number three I don't know. No. I will ask. We'll ask because Next that's a weekend. that's a really that's an intriguing. It's a good I'm title. Gonna, yeah, well, yeah, look out for Jura number three. It's a really I mean it's it's the start of a novel.
1: I'll just tell you one other start Helena anecdote, which is her youngest Roland, who's now twenty two. We were once on the phone and I was in New York and I'm saying, Okay, let's play this through. I've been arrested. What should I do? And we're doing the details and she's saying, Don't do a I've forgotten what you call it, an ID parade. And we're talking about it. And Roland pipes up at the other end and he says, Mum, is Reggie in jail?
0: <laughs> Only for research purposes. Exactly. Uh, I would say. Okay, we're going to throw it open to questions. Um, we've got 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so please see so many of you here. It's fantastic. Thanks know, for coming. I know. I mean, God. We, have got, you, we have got roving mics. The first chap to put his hand up was in the middle there. Keep your hand up, please, sir. We'll get to you now with the mic. Can you see the gentleman in the pale blue shirt? Am I right? And glasses? And we'll come to you next, sir. Thank you. Could I ask two questions, if that's permissible? First, Reggie, I ask you, uh, with your background, why crime rather than something maybe in the espionage line, spy I'm story? I'm sorry, why? why? Why crime rather than espionage? Why crime rather than espionage or spy story or something? Well,
1: I th- I think that there's not necessarily that much, needn't be that much distinction anymore. I mean, you know, I think Le Carre at his best, is the best, pretty much as good as it gets. and. And yet, what's really good about a lot of his—I mean, the, the two or three really good books—is they're very domestic. I mean, the thing about Le Carre to me is it's—they're always about the English class system. The characters are always—you know—who cares who done it, really? I mean, you know, if you care who done it, then you should read Agatha Christie, who was the absolute genius, and you'll never get it right. So, if, if I wanted to keep them in New York, um, London, grad. They have become a bit more spy thrillery but to me I don't I don't know what do you think I don't. Well, think I mean the,
0: the spy novel definitely went out of favour for a while, um, but it, I think it's going to come back now because if, if you look at what's happening in America with the Russian spies, with the with the poisoning of the polonium and, and with Litvinenko, with the fact that you know people are now on the radio today on the Today programme they were talking about. I think there's a programme on today on uh, somewhere in Radio 4 about the, the Russian influence and how they're starting up again mm. because Putin wants information and he doesn't care how he gets it.
1: And he wants to be big, yeah. he wants to be yeah. a
0: player. Anyway, second question. Second question is for you, uh, Ian. If, uh, your character, Rebus, was he modelled at all on a real life character or is he pure fiction? I, he, he was, I, I didn't know any cops when I started, so he was pure fiction. And I wanted to make him as different from me as possible. Because in my very first book, The Flood, there was a character, you know, people in my hometown thought they could see themselves in that book. I had a school friend called Sandy, he thought he was a character called Sandy, uh, and so on, you know. uh, And trying to persuade him that this wasn't Carden Den, it was Carr's Den, it's a totally fictitious town. It wasn't working. So I just thought, I'll write about someone who's so different from me that nobody can see me in him, and they will read it as fiction, not as thinly disguised. Uh, autobiography but i have since since the first book came out i've met cop after cop after cop who says we had a guy like him in our station i know a guy just like him people who say he must be based on me uh you know th- them themselves who've been cops so obviously there is something that speaks to a lot of people uh, about rebus so thanks for that thank you and um, we're going to come if you put your hand back up sir right up and there's a quest once to get the mic back pass it back along there we've got two mics or just the one got another mic, excellent, okay, we'll bear you in mind for later, but if, can, can you come around to the front here, we'll see if there's anybody over there for the next one, got that gentleman next after this, keep your, keep your hand up sir, and you, you'll come after this one, sir. Thank you. First of all, with all due respect, Mr. Rankin, Mr. Nadelson was right about Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs>
1: My question for both of you is, in the digital age, how will your books be transmitted in the future? You've seen agents now going direct to the Internet or through the online publishers. Will you see authors publishing their own books via the Internet, major league authors such as yourselves? Will you see them perhaps being sold in short form? As more and more I teach at a university, I find it's troublesome that our young people don't read long form. How do you think the digital age is going to change your ability to communicate
0: with readers? Thanks. I I think the answer to that is nobody knows. I mean, certainly none of the agents and publishers I've spoken to really know what's going to happen in the future. Um, I've been vox popping a lot of people out here um, the last couple of days for a a BBC um, special, Newsnight Review special on Friday night, about the future of the book, and would they use e-readers, and do they prefer paper books, and can you ever imagine a world without paper? Um, It's a tough one, I think. But uh, just to finish up, uh, a lot of them say, well, if it goes the same way as music, then yes, the e-reader's definitely the future, electronic books are the future. Um, So it depends on whether you think the publishing industry and the music industry are that similar. If you're a small-scale band, if you've got a loyal following of 15,000 fans who will buy your stuff on the internet, you can be solely self-supporting. So an author with 15,000 readers probably can be self-supporting as well um so uh, you know so you can maybe self-publish in the age of the internet in a way you couldn't have done before when it was called vanity publishing and you were running around with a bunch of books in the back of your car trying to sell them so maybe it's possible
1: yeah no i mean ian has said it all it's who knows if we knew
0: (laughs) we'd be billionaires yeah (laughs) Uh, we'd we'd be be,
1: billionaires i don't think people and this isn't just sort of being an old grumpy old woman um i don't think people will ever not read books Uh, And, frankly, if they read them on a Kindle, I don't really care. I mean, you can't go around being cranky about all of that stuff, Um, just like them to read them. And I think as far as people not reading long-form books, you know, there's a lot more to get kids' attention now. Things are much more fragmented. I mean, when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, if I can go into somebody's house and tell you how old somebody is by the albums they have, it's changed. The world has changed. You can't stop technology, you can't stop. I mean, there's no point in regretting the BBC that was. Technology is here, there are 800 channels, I think you just have to try. But I do think in the universities, a lot of people have given in to the pressures from students and their parents not to give them so much work. You know, when I was, when I was at, at university reading English, you read all the books. I mean, who now reads The Fairy Queen?
0: uh maybe first year at st andrews yeah. um, i don't know i don't know no Thanks. that's unfair you, you took that one well. yeah i know that's that's unfair when i went to when I, the reason i say that is because when i was 17 and i went to st andrews and said i'm thinking of doing english at university what modern literature could i study here they said milton <laughs> I thought this isn't my university. But things, <laughs> things have blissfully changed. There is now a, a lecturer at St. Andrews who's actually a specialist in crime fiction. Yeah. Things have changed at St. Andrews, I have to say. Um, yeah, I mean, two le- final points on that before we go to the next question, I would say, and thanks for that. I mean, one is um, when the electricity runs out, when the oil runs out and the lights go off, hey, we'll still have candles and physical books. Try charging up your Kindle, right? That's number one. Number two, last year, more turntables, vinyl turntables were sold in CD players people are going back to vinyl. So even if physical book drifts away, it could come back again. You never know, ebb and swell, you never know. We'll take this question over here. I was rather hoping you'd compare a little bit more Artie and Rebus and, you know, what would Artie do in this situation? What would Rebus do? So, well, I mean, it's a good well, question. Yeah. Give
1: us a situation.
0: <laughs> I, mean, would, I mean, what would what would what would Artie make when if he came to Edinburgh? What would he see in the city? What do you see when you come here that the locals don't see? Well, could I continue? Yeah, go on. Sorry. <laughs> I thought that was a question perhaps you can uh, talk about would Artie
1: and Rebus get on would there be tension between them what sort of situation would you
0: see between them if they not met not
1: after they had a few scotches
0: <laughs> and they could talk about music
1: they'd talk about music and they'd drink whiskey that yeah, would be enough
0: that's that's plenty to keep them going Yeah. no um, I think
1: Artie would like Edinburgh especially seeing it with Rebus because I think he would I mean, I think he'd like the pretty side of things, but being a New Yorker, I think he'd respond, well, Well, also, you like to eat a lot in oh, good yeah. places. <laughs> so that would be, that would really be good. I think by the time they'd had enough to drink, enough pizza, enough to eat, and um, talked about music, you could no doubt take them to some good music venues. I mean, Rebus, not you.
0: Yeah, there aren't. I mean, uh, the struggle. I mean, there's a couple of jazz venues. There's not much, in the way of jazz in Edinburgh, I'm afraid, uh, and even less in things like the blues. But there are music venues. And but Rebus doesn't go to live music anymore. He likes to sit at home really and listen to his LPs because he feels like a. He goes to a gig if he was like a paedophile. He's the oldest person in the. He's the oldest person nearby, about forty years. You I think know? he better uh, come to New York because yeah.
1: you know everybody's got plastic surgery. Absolutely, so absolutely.
0: <laughs> Yes, another thing Rebus wouldn't have his plastic surgery, I dare say. No tummy tucks for him. No, I think, I think they would, would go on. I mean, I like, the thing I like about Reggie's books is I do like the, the, the kind of social commentary, the anger. Um, there's a political subtext there for those who want to take it. And that's what I do a lot in the books as well, is, is try to say, look, this is why this stuff is happening. Is there anything we can do about it? Um, or just be aware that the that, 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 that the politicians are screwing up yet again. Uh, in many cases. Uh, time for one more, I think, and uh, oh, we've got a couple, uh, alright, if you can go, the lady at the end, we'll see how we get on after that. I know some people have got, probably got to go, if you've got to go, I think you've got to exit this way, unless you want to climb over chairs, because some people have got things that have passed. Yeah. Hi, okay, this is a short one. Uh, I just have a question for the title of your book, London, London Grad. Is it uh, grad as in city, or grad. Where are you from? Uh Croatia.
1: Yeah. I was just in Croatia last week. So, um yes, it's gradison city. Thanks.
0: And why Londongrad?
1: Um well, it's not my my type. That's what it's been called a lot over the years of the sort uh-huh. of London oligarchs. It's been referred to that way and a sort of, you know, a Russianized London.
0: Because we also had a book uh, last year called London Stan or Londonistan. Lon- London yes, there was something which like was that. Kind yeah. of similar use of the word uh, for a similar, but similar stan, reason. But stan
1: means country, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. yeah, it's like Afghanistan. It's just the, the, the influence that people have had on London, I guess, as incomers. How, I mean, you have some fantastic titles. I do. I like your titles a lot. I mean, how hard do you work at it? I mean, do, are they your titles or is it your editor?
1: No, they're mine, but I, it's, a couple have come easy, um, and some have to be changed. I mean, my next one, Blood Count, was actually called Sugar Hill, which is a part of Harlem. But I thought, no one, hardly anyone in New York even knows what Sugar Hill is, and, and unlike some of my other place titles. I have one called Fresh Kills, which is the garbage dump on Staten Island in New York, but it has that double thing, obviously, whereas Sugar Hill didn't sound like anything. Blood Count actually is um, the name of Billy Strayhorn, who wrote many of Duke Ellington's songs. It was his last song. He wrote it while he was dying. But it has a double meaning in the book. It has another whole um, side to it. So, you know, Some Come Easy, some came a disturbed earth came out of something what was the case of those missing girls about 7 or 8 years ago in England there was a huge case and i heard they kept turning up mounds of earth and i heard a cop on tv referred to it as disturbed earth and i thought wow. that was a really good, good title yeah
0: yeah, sometimes titles just jump at you, and you think I've got now. I've got the title. I've now got to write the book. Um, oh no, it's such a pity, really. Yeah. I thought of
1: a great one for next year, though. I was. Don't have, tell anybody. There's no, lots no, of writers in the audience. They have the most fantastic toilets behind the author's hut, and it says "authors' toilets." And I thought, a short story for Edinburgh next year.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. We'll hold you to that, Reggie. We'll hold you to that. No,
1: I'm, ha- um, I'm thinking you might Oh, for might me? Co- oh my God!
0: Uh, I'm having a year off this year. Um, listen, <laughs> thanks very much to you all for being such a fantastic audience. Reggie will be signing our books in the book signing tent, yes. uh, which and is. Can next I door. just
1: say thank you to Ian, who really—it's the most generous thing anyone's to, no, ever no, done, no. without um, pressure from Helena Kennedy. No, we've,
0: <laughs> we, I think we've all enjoyed it. Please, ladies and gentlemen, Reggie. Anderson. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.